Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am very excited about today's show. Uh, I'll talk about my guest in just a second, but first, I want to let you know that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you have been um, blessed or confronted or have benefited from this podcast in any way and would love to contribute to the ongoing work of Theology in the Raw, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw and become part of the 240-ish Patreon supporters who are part of the, the uh, Theology in the Raw community. And you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to um, lots of different kinds of premium content, like once a month blogs that I uh, write for my Patreon supporters, uh, once a month podcasts that I record for my Patreon supporters. So again, if you would like to support the show, it's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. If you want to uh, come to one or some or all of the speaking events that I'm going to be engaging in over the next several weeks, uh, I will be in Nashville, Tennessee, March uh, 10th and March 11th. I'll be in Seattle, Washington, March 15th, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, April 30th and May 1st, and Phoenix, Arizona, May 6th and May 7th, and a few other gigs in the fall, but uh, that's so far away. Let's not even worry about that. If you want to look at my schedule, it's at it's on uh, centerforfaith.com. You can go to the events page and look and see how and where or where I'm speaking and how you can register for those events. That's centerforfaith.com and go to the events link. I uh, have a friend on the podcast today named Rachel Gilson and Rachel is uh, one of a kind. <laughs> she's so, uh, she's a fun hang. Um, we've only had a few face-to-face um, hangouts and Rachel is just one of those people that you just want to keep hanging out with. She's so enjoyable. She's incredibly hilarious, has that kind of dry, um, super witty, somewhat edgy sense of humor. Uh, Rachel lives in the Boston area. She works for Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. She is the director of theological development for the Northeast. She's pursuing a Master of Divinity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She loves Greek, Hebrew, theology, literature, and, trans- and the transforming work of the spirit in her messy life. Uh, she has a great blog called Born Again This Way. And she has a book that just came out or is coming out. March 1st, it releases called Born Again This Way, coming out, coming to faith, and what comes next. Rachel is uh, a same-sex attracted Christian married to a dude. Uh, she ha- was raised in a very non-Christian secular environment, has an amazing story, lots to say. Please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Rachel Gilson. I'm here with my friend, Rachel Gilson. Rachel, thanks so much for being a first-time guest on Theology in the Raw. That's right. I'm excited. Thanks for having I, me. I am too. We, we've only hung out twice, three times Yeah, maybe? two times, but they were two great times. They were great times, and I just so enjoy hanging out with you. I, um, you're kind of a, um, a hard person to pin down. 
Um, I mean, not actually physically. I'm, I'm pretty weak. You could pin (laughs) me to the ground pretty easily. See, this is what I'm talking about. Okay. So, um, (laughs) I mean, you, you, how would you describe yourself theologically? Let's just start there. Oh, theologically. Uh, Well, I am a Southern Baptist who's always been a Christian in New England. Okay. So that, um, has been part of my theological heritage, like sort of, um, conservative, but also liberal. Okay, you gotta unpack that because that's 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 what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I absolutely believe in the authority and inerrancy of God's word, and I'm a complementarian, even. Really? Wow. But at the same time, even I love that little word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also fairly progressive when it comes to some types of social things, so. Okay. It can be a it can be a funny mix, and I feel like you, when when I first met you, or maybe came across your writing, I feel like you hold your card, or you you don't want to just preach the choir, reinforce one's tribal identity or tribal beliefs. You seem to enjoy writing and speaking in a way that's going to um, disrupt in a healthy way various people, wherever they're at, like, you're not really into like just reinforcing one's preconceived beliefs. That's my um, perspective. Is that something you enjoy? Or am I misreading your situation? I guess I never think actively about the idea of disruption. But I've always been really interested in the idea of what's actually true, what's actually helpful, what's actually beautiful. And you were, and a, so I'm a Protestant. I go back to the text. And so I suppose if I find things in the text that are disruptive, I don't mind pulling them out. And, and you were a, a later convert, right? Were you, tell, tell us your story a little bit. Let's go back to your teenage. Oh, who yeah, who sure. is Rachel as a, why don't we just start as a 13 year old Rachel Gilson? 13 year old. Okay. Yeah. 13 year old Rachel Gilson lived in Solvang, California, which is a very conservative little town in a somewhat liberal state. And I wasn't a churchgoer at all. Like we were not Christmas or Easter people. My mom had been sort of raised Catholic and ditched it for cigarettes and boys. My dad had been raised nothing. So, you know, by the time they were raising their family, we were, we were nothing. But there were a lot of people around me who were churchgoers. So I kind of had cultural Christianity around me. Okay. Um, but by the time I was started caring a lot about the big ideas of the world and started asking some of my peers who identified as Christians to kind of talk with me about their worldview. I realized that um, the Christian teens around me didn't have very impressive answers. So I kind of started to develop an idea that maybe Christians were people who didn't know how to think for themselves. It's probably not fair to base that on the answers of teenagers. I've since learned that Christianity is actually one of the most robust intellectual traditions in the world, but I didn't have access to that at the time. And you were naturally very academically wired or intellectually wired. Oh, totally. Literally the only things I'm good at are reading and writing. Yeah. (laughs) So I've had to bear that burden my whole life. Um, the, The other thing that was true about me in high school was that that that's when I discovered that really my my romantic and sexual desires were much more at home with other Um, young women and not young men. I've always enjoyed the company of men, like the company of Mm. guys. And so I thought that meant that I liked them. But as I had, you know, high school dating relationships with guys, I was like, that's a little, 
it's kind of a little awkward. And you could be thinking, well, it's because you were hooking up with teenage boys, which isn't wrong, you know, but yeah. uh, actually upon having my first girlfriend and then, and then also um, experimenting with some other young women in my environment, I realized, no, this is definitely, this is definitely where I'm at home. And, you know, this was 2001, 2002. This was back when Will and Grace was still edgy, not nostalgic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it was a little bit of, ooh, is this allowed? Uh, can I do this? But I didn't have anything in my worldview that told me I couldn't. It just seemed, I don't know, like loving anybody else. So See, figured I it must be all right. So I, I, I know a lot of people who grew up in the church when they kind of realized they're attracted yeah. to the same sex. You grew up in a very secular environment or at least your home environment was it did was it as you listen to other people's stories who grew up in the church with this experience is your experience where, where do your experiences kind of overlap and where do they diverge oh did gosh. you feel like shamed and ostracized whatever no like, oh, like, no this is this is i think so when andrew Marin put out that study that was talking about what was it 83 percent of lgbt yeah. people who grew up in a christian church i was like oh my goodness i really am in the minority um i remember considering, oh, I've got to tell my mom about my girlfriend. And it felt a little strange, mostly just because I didn't like sharing things with my mom. I knew she would be more upset if I brought home um, someone who was Mexican-American as opposed to bringing home a girl. Wow, okay. You know, and, and it, didn't, it didn't phase her at all. She, um, she ran away from home in her early 20s and moved to San Francisco in the early 1980s and oh, wow. lived with a couple gay guys and she was, she was down. Um, so I think one of the biggest differences, I don't know how to put this in a way that isn't harsh, but because I didn't grow up in the church, because I didn't grow up in a conservative environment, um, I didn't really have a lot of baggage when I was processing my sexual attractions. I think it's actually helped me come to a place where I can synthesize what the gospel says and what my attractional patterns are without having to dig through these like deep layers of internalized homophobia or, or having heard for years that you choose to be gay because you hate God. Like the layers of that are so difficult to unpack. I honestly think in some ways I have an easier time having not grown up in the church. And isn't that sad? Like, shouldn't it be actually better for our youth to grow up in the church? Yeah, that's, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I don't even know how to respond to what you said because I might need to let it kind of soak in. But, but uh, yes, it is unfortunate as that is, I, I can, uh, it doesn't, it's not shocking, honestly, with yeah. your, your trajectory. Um, so, uh, so, so w w you're coming out to your parents. Was that a frightening experience? I mean, I know for Christians, it's like years of agony and fear and, and then they come out and sometimes it even goes okay. And it's still right. so much anxiety. Oftentimes it doesn't go okay. Like what was your built, your leading up to and coming out? Was it just kind of like a huge deal or was it just Tuesday? You know? Yeah, it was not a huge deal. I mean, I remember my mom was dropping me off at the airport cause I was going to fly from Santa Barbara's airport to New York to see my girlfriend at the time. And my mom basically asked, is she your girlfriend? And I was like, yeah. And then we just kept eating dinner. You know, it really wasn't, it really wasn't a thing. My dad, um, my parents had been divorced, so I didn't live with my dad at the time. And 
he and I have always been super friendly, but we just didn't really talk about my romantic life. And then I went to college and became a Christian and then eventually married a man. And so I never actually got around to talking to my dad about it until my Christianity Today article came out and he read it and he was like, oh, I didn't know all that. And I had sort of forgotten he didn't know. So that was a little awkward. What was his, was he like a little bum that you didn't share with him earlier? Or was he upset I, that yeah, you I used to be or are a attractive person? Or? Yeah, I think he was just surprised that I hadn't told him. Um, I think he was also just proud of me. My dad is like the most supportive non-believer oh. you could ever meet in your life. He thinks my faith is great, even wow. though he doesn't believe yeah. it. So I think just publishing, he was like, oh, look at my daughter. She's doing so well. So, so, to, uh, what, when did you come to know Jesus and what did that look like? I mean, um, coming from a very secular background in a same sex relationship. Yeah. So, well, I, um, I was accepted into Yale college, which I agreed to go to because I didn't understand what winter was. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, this was going to be my dream location, like the starting patch of my life because I could finally explore big ideas, not being stuck in a cow town like Solvang. And um, I thought, you know, I'll finally be able to explore my sexuality instead of convincing all these straight girls to sleep with me because that's exhausting. <laughs> so I was really, I was looking forward to the future. Um, but two, two big things happened. So one, I found out that if you go to a crappy public high school in California, you will not be the best prepared student at Yale University. <laughs> so this uh, high esteem I had in my own intellectual awesomeness just sort of crumbled. And then the other thing that happened to me was my girlfriend broke up with me in this dramatic fashion. Cause you know, teenagers, you can only break up in dramatic fashion really. And <laughs> she left me for this guy that lived in a van and hadn't graduated high school. And I thought, seriously, that's who you're leaving me for? It was just very, you know, it's a real gut punch to the, to the identity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the start of the spring semester, I had spent my Christmas break with her too because I'd been kicked out of my house, which is a different long story, and they don't let you stay at school because they clean it or whatever. So I'd just been stuck with her but not with her anymore, and it was all just, I wasn't feeling great. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to turn to Jesus, you know, because I didn't believe in Jesus. So um, early in the spring semester when I'd gotten back to Yale, um, I was taking this philosophy class that went through, you know, the Western canon or whatever. And so one of our first lectures back, we were talking about Rene Descartes, the I think, therefore I am guy. Mm -hmm. So the, the lecturer was talking all about how Descartes built a whole proof for the existence of God off of that phrase. I remember sitting in the audience thinking, that is a really stupid proof for the existence of God, <laughs> which I still think. Um, yeah, I do too. I don't, I don't get it. But yeah. It's not persuasive. Yeah. But I was, I was sitting there and I was wondering, well, what if there's, what if there's like a better proof for the existence of God out there? But sort of quickly in my mind, I was like, no, that's, that's for stupid bigots. We don't, we don't think about God. And then I was also like, well, but if I'm a committed atheist, you know, I, I probably should know what the best arguments are. That way I can, I can think about them. Like I was so, even jokingly with my high school English teacher, I would write Satan on top of my papers instead of my name and pass them in just because I was, I was sort of aggressively not Christian. Um, 
So I was kind of embarrassed by my interest. So I did what every millennial does, right? I went to my room and opened up my laptop and asked Google all my questions. So I was just firing in religious search terms. And when someone like my roommate would come in behind me, I would slam my Dell shut like a kid caught looking at porn on the family computer and just be like, oh yeah, no, I'm doing French homework, which I was definitely never doing. And so I kept reading about like lots of different religious and spiritual type things, but I kept coming back to reading about Jesus. And in my mind, so this was 2004, in my mind, Jesus was sort of this caricature, like a like an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga or something, like not very appealing, kind of a doofus or whatever. But the Jesus I was reading about was actually really sharp. My favorite stories were when his opponents would come and ask him these questions, to try to trick him, and he would just shut them down. I loved that. Actually, I still sort of love it. But there was also a tenderness to Jesus that was kind of mystifying to me maybe I, but really i just sort of felt almost icky being interested in jesus i was like i want to marry a woman like my sexuality does not fit being interested in this character but i kind of couldn't shake it either so the only two people i knew at yale who identified as christians were these two girls who were dating each other and one of them was training to be a lutheran minister so i thought clearly they know what's going on. You know, they've got the answer for it. So I went to them and they were like, oh yeah, it's all been a big misunderstanding. The Bible totally supports monogamous same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really excited by that idea. It's not like I was even saying I wanted to be a Christian, but the thought that maybe there was an opening in the Bible for this was intriguing to me, kind of exciting. And they gave me this packet of information that I took back to my dorm room to, you know, devour. And I remember reading it and thinking, gosh, this makes a lot of sense. Like it had an internal consistency that was really appealing. But I also thought, well, maybe I should read some of the Bible verses it's claiming to interpret. So I remember um, Googling them. I didn't have a Bible, you know, so I was pulling them up on my, on my screen. And as I looked at my screen, looked at the packet back and forth, I was like, uh-oh, I don't think these do a very good job with the source material. And it's not like I was a Bible scholar. I just, I was just a reader. So you were a non-Christian looking at Christian affirming arguments and the Bible. Yes. With obviously no internal motivation to not see it their way, but just from a very, I know we're not supposed to say this, but from an objective standpoint, just not being convinced that this is the best reading of that text over there that they're trying to interpret. I mean, I'm not even sure if it was objective. I, I really wanted to believe the affirming arguments. Hmm. Frankly, I, that idea was exciting to me, but I just do couldn't you, make it square. Do you remember anything specific? Like, like get an example? Well, I, I remember, I kind of wish I still had that packet. I totally threw it away. I, I remember a long description about David and Jonathan. Hmm. And I was reading through it and it seemed really compelling. And then when I went to read about David myself, I was like, oh, I kind of see what they're saying about this Jonathan thing, but it really feels like David has more of a woman problem than a man problem. I just, I, I, I mean, it's hard to put yourself back in this 16 years ago, you know, but I just remember thinking, I don't know. I, I think we might be reading too much into that. Hmm. And I, I remember the kind of going through, I, I think the other thing that really stood out to me 
was their interactions with Romans 1. That was my first time ever reading that text. And I honed in on it too, because that's the place where female um, mm-hmm. sexuality is mentioned specifically. And spending some time there and just reading the context of Romans 1 around it and feeling like, I don't think that that's what this ancient dead guy is saying. Hmm. Interesting. Like, what so, do I know okay. about Paul? <laughs> so, okay, so now you're, at least Christianity is viewed as not necessarily anti-intellectual, bigoted, or whatever. You've encountered some affirming uh, Christians. So what's, what's the next step in your journey? Yeah, and I felt a little duped after reading the article. I was like, well, that's stupid. Of course, this religion doesn't actually have space for, okay. you know, gay and lesbian people. But I happened to be in the room of an acquaintance sometime after that. So she was a non-practicing Catholic. I remember standing in her doorway and she was getting something out of her room. And next to her doorway, there was this bookshelf. And one of my favorite hobbies is to look at people's bookshelves and judge them. (laughs) So I was looking through her bookshelf and uh, she had a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, I didn't know anything about what that book was or its reputation. Just the title of it made me want to read it, but I was also too embarrassed to ask her for it. So while she was turned the other way, not looking, I decided to just steal it. <laughs> Get out. You know, cause it's not that big. It fits into yeah. a bag pretty easily. So it was actually while I was reading mere Christianity, I don't know, sometime after that, that uh, I was in the library between classes and I was sitting there happily reading, finding it interesting. And just suddenly I was overwhelmed with this realization that not only was there a God in some sort of generic sense, but I realized that there was a God who made me and who was very holy. Now it's not like I had that vocabulary word, you know, but that idea of transcendence of perfection, the fact that I was going to owe him an account. And I was really afraid actually, because I was a liar. I cheated on stuff. I was mean to people. I was sexually immoral. I was reading a stolen book. It's sort of like all of the chips were just shoved into the guilty category, you know? So I sat there and I was like, oh, this is very bad for me. Like, this is bad news. But then really quickly with that, I guess, I think it was the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure I got this on my own, you know? It also became clear to me that part of the reason Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me, and that the only way to be safe was to run towards him, not Mm. away from him. Mm. And so I remember sitting there thinking, well, like so much of my life would have to change if I became a Christian, like a lot of things, not least of which is that I want to marry a woman. You know, it's 2004. I, it was like Massachusetts had either just legalized same sex marriage or it was about to, like I could tell the future was with me. It felt like a bad time to, yeah. make this decision. But at the same time, I was also like, well, I can't pretend that the gospel isn't true just because it's inconvenient for my life. Like, that's pretty stupid. <laughs> like, that's, I got to take this deal, you know, like, I'm not going to get a better deal than this. So I just sort of closed my eyes and said, okay, fine. And then I went to class. 
And then what? <laughs> Woke up the next day. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end for the next 16 years. Here I am talking yeah. to Rachel uh, Agnostic uh, Gilson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, um, that same day, I saw a little advertisement for a group, a student group called Yale Students for Christ. It was going to be having a Valentine's party in a couple days. So I decided to crash that party. And then after meeting those kids, like I just followed them around like a baby quail. Like they were who I watched to figure out how to be a Christian. They were like, do you want to come to church? I said, yes. They're like, do you want to come to Bible study? I said, yes. Can you give me a Bible study? They're like, can you give me a Bible? Like, you want to come to prayer? I'll come to prayer. I learned that we don't tell dirty jokes to make friends. I, I learned when we hug. I learned that the music is really bad. Like everything you need to know to be an evangelical, I picked up. <laughs> from these kids um, and it was a huge blessing to me. And I think particularly to come to faith at a place like Yale, it's not like I was surrounded by perfect people, but I was surrounded by Christians who were really committed to ideas, to truth. Mm -hmm. um, my, first, my first womb of faith in a way was, was a place that took the intellectual aspects of Christianity really seriously. And I think that was helpful for me. And in a sense, you almost, I mean, being so intellectually wired, obviously these Christians on campus going to Yale aren't stupid, right? So they probably blew apart some of the stereotypes of being... Oh, definitely. You know. Especially like my campus ministers, even my, the pastors I was interacting with were just so thoughtful, hmm. so studious, really. And, and not just in like a Point Dexter kind of sense, but hmm. their characters were so were so deep and well-formed too. It was like I could, I could feel their intellectual life, but I could also feel their virtuous life. Mm -hmm. And the combination of those things was really attractive. So going back through now, how, how, did, you, how did you process, as you became a Christian, your, your sexuality? Like what, what did that processing journey look like? Yeah. So it became clear to me, you know, the first couple months, I'm, I'm learning tons about how to be a Christian, but I was like, you know my attraction to women isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's been 16 years since I prayed to receive Christ in Campus Crusade language, right? And uh, my attraction to women hasn't gone anywhere. So the biggest, the biggest question of my first couple of years of walking with the Lord was, what in the world am I gonna do about that? Mm -hmm. Because I felt pretty secure that the Bible said no to same-sex lust and to sexual and romantic relationships between people of the same sex. I felt confident in that. I have since learned Greek and Hebrew and still feel confident in it. You know, it was like, okay, so there's not, uh, I've never felt shaky on that point. But the real thing that I, that I wanted to bargain with God a lot in my first couple of years of walking with him was why? Yeah why do you say this? It doesn't make sense to me. It, mm. It's not intuitive to me at all. In fact, it's counterintuitive, like quite specifically. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the things that was so important for me was the Lord kind of pressing back on me and suggesting, what if the most important question isn't why I'm asking something? Uh, what if the more important question is, can you trust me? Mm -hmm. 
And that was really important for me to have to process it. I ended up thinking a lot about the garden at that time, you know, cause there was sort of, there was this interesting situation, whether you take Adam and Eve to be literal or metaphorical, it's an, it's an interesting situation to put two people in this very good place and you're going to give them one prohibition. And that prohibition wasn't something that was actually intuitive. Like it could make sense to say, okay, Adam and Eve, um, here you are, here's your one rule don't murder each other, mm-hmm. right? Because murder feels like we get it in our gut that murder's wrong. It's messy, be destroying an image bearer. Like we could really, it'd be easy to make a case, right? If someone doesn't know that murder's intuitively wrong, like they should talk to somebody about that. Right, It's right. agreed. Yeah. There, there's clear natural law principles. Yeah, that you padding can it out, exactly. But one of the interesting things about the prohibition he did give them was, um, don't eat this fruit that's connected to being wise because you'll die. Yeah. <laughs> even vegans eat fruit. You know what I mean? Like there's what, yeah, what's it's not going even a, on yeah, here? Not even a plant. You're not even killing a plant. Yeah, like <laughs> it's just, it's just the thing that should be eaten. And, and, you know, I think it was interesting for me to reflect on the fact that even before sin entered the world, we're supposed to relate to God by, by faith and not by sight. Huh. Like it's actually about him, right? Cause in order to obey that rule, you have to trust him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where the serpent plays Eve, you know, and then she piles up all this data. Like she sees that it's attractive, that it would be good to eat, that it's desires to make her wise. So on the one hand, she has a load of her own data saying eating the fruit would be good. And the only thing she has on the other side is God's word. And I felt like that really did sum up how I was feeling about sexuality. All the data I was piling up, like intuitively told me I should pursue what I desired. But on the other hand, I I had God's word. And so it was the same question to me, like, has he, has he proven himself trustworthy? Mm Mm-hmm. Is this is this where you go when I'm sure you have to feel this question a lot? I, I know I do. The the why question. Uh, I get this, you know, quite a bit. It's probably top five questions. It's like, okay, I, I see sure. how you're interpreting the Bible. It makes sense, but why? Why would God do this? Is is this where you go um, to respond to that question? You go back to the garden, or? Well, it depends on who's asking. <laughs> yeah, obviously, as I'm sure it does for you. I, I it was important for me as the first step. Now, I, subsequently, I feel like I have, I have some more data around why. I, yeah. I think I can see that God has a, a design for marriage and sexuality that, that cause his nose to not be arbitrary or cruel, but to actually make sense. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that that answer to why is really appropriate, like walking through and demonstrating that God is doing something through our bodies mm-hmm. and through our desires but the first answer to why that I needed was his character. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's the first why that everybody would need. But for me, right. it was really important to go back to his goodness. That if I tried to take him out of the conversation, it wasn't going to make sense anymore. Right. No, that's good. I mean, I, the, the why questions are really, it's a great question. And I, and I, I like to wrestle with it. And I, I very much... Um, uh, appreciate and, and in some ways sympathize with people that are really hung up on that, you know? Um, but it, I, I would say, you know, God, 
sometimes reveals to us the why and sometimes doesn't. And sometimes he doesn't. Whether something is true and good and beautiful um, doesn't hinge on whether God has explained to us the why. And to me that, yeah. and I don't, you know, people, what, just God said so? Is that it? Like, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, but I, the I think that's is, part of it. But the thing is, God <laughs> said so is absolutely rooted in who he is. It's not right. like he just arbitrarily says stuff to trip us up. Right. And, and his sp- words sometimes, come out of his character. Sometimes, and sometimes he, like exactly, exactly what you said, sometimes he invites us to trust him and rather than explaining all the details, he, he could, if he explained all the details, underlying every moral do and don't or whatever, like he could do that, but it, he clearly he totally doesn't. Could. Um, yeah. uh, and I mean, the book of Job, I know it's kind of cliche, but I mean, the book of Job is, is huge in this. I mean, the whole problem yeah. of, suffering and, and the goodness of God and, and, and God's response, he doesn't actually unveil all the ins and outs and intricacies of, of that question, but says, who, you know, who are you to question? It's a little more hardcore than sometimes yeah, I'm even comfortable so. with. Like, who are you to question, you know, what, what I've done in your life? I'm God, you're not. And I, I just think, and I don't always want to, like you said, this, uh, people are coming from different perspectives, even with that question. But I think it is part of a basic step toward a genuine relationship with God to affirm and celebrate the fact that God is God, you are not, and he doesn't owe yeah. you an explanation for everything. If you, if yeah. you, if it's one of those like, oh, I could never believe in a God that would, then, then, then rethink. Then, then the Christian God might not gonna, be for you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. um, and I, and I think it was, um, it was just important for me to go through that developmentally because not having come from a Christian household at all, like I was steeped in, mm-hmm. I own me. And no one else is going to take care of me but me. Mm -hmm. And so to have to transition to actually Jesus owns me and he can do a better job of taking care of me than me was really important for me. I wonder if that, going back to your original point of like, it's almost, it makes more sense coming from a very secular background, Christianity, because it's, the differences are very clear because... To your yeah. point about you owning you, well, that, that's pretty pervasive in the church, which makes it confusing <laughs> when within that context, we're called to not, to, to let God, you know, to understand right. that God owns you. And I don't know, it's a little well, more blurry. And I, and I do think that some of the, some of the difficulty that people in the church can have with the sacrifices that same-sex attracted believers have to make is because they haven't had to make any sacrifices yeah. to follow Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. If it hasn't cost you anything, it feels really embarrassing to ask someone else to pay a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So, so now you're married to a dude. Um, I am. You're with a beard and everything. With He's a very beard manly. and a flannel <laughs> and an axe. He has. He wears flannel he wears all flannel. the time. Dude wrote. <laughs> dude grew up in the woods of New Hampshire. Like oh, he is that man. He is. Wow. All right. Cool. Uh, so you come. Let, let, I, I something I wanted to ask you about your story, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Um, did you have, before you started to really embrace your same-sex sexuality as a teenager, did you have like bad experiences with men? Were men kind of threatening or disgusting? Did they represent patriarchy or whatever? I mean, was there, no, or was I, it just a natural, I just, I really, women. I've always liked men and my relationship with my dad was really safe and wholesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I had male teachers who I really liked. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have bad experiences with okay. grown-up men. I just think women are really pretty. <laughs> so <laughs> would you... In, in That's my, a silly way to put it, but like... No, I, 
I, I do too. So we, <laughs> um, in my anecdotal experience, most same sex attracted slash lesbian women that I meet, they, they, they wouldn't be able to say that they have had bad. Ex- and I'm not saying yeah. that's why they're same sex attracted. I'm just saying it no, is no, interesting. No, no, no. But, but there's, is, a, is that, would there's you a host of that? women who have had some bad experiences. Yeah. I mean, certainly not all, but yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a cluster for sure. I think it's higher. It seems, again, I don't have a, a data on this or data. Is it data or data? You're the English. I say both Augustine, okay. Augustine. I right. don't know. We just, okay. you just roll with it. Um, I, so I don't have any data on it, uh, but it, it seems that with, with same sex attracted women, there's typically more of a negative view of, of men or bad experience of men or a boyfriend or a father or something than with same sex attracted men with men. It seems to be, um, it's just that, that biological, biologically rooted drive seems to be maybe stronger. Whereas with women, I, it seems to be a little more complex. Again, I'm just going on anecdotal kind of story. Yeah, well, and um, I'm, I'm sure you've read Lisa Diamond's work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so it does seem, uh, when female sexuality is different than male sexuality in a lot of different ways. And I think right. that's important. It was really actually affirming for me to read her work when she talks about how men who experience same sex attraction tend to know so much earlier in their life whereas women actually know later. And I think that was something I had to process as a 15 year old being like, well, if this is true, why didn't I know when I was like seven or something? But it turns out that's actually somewhat typical for women. It's, it really, you know, two years ago when I read it, I, I sort of breathed a sigh of relief. Interesting. (laughs) Like, Oh, I'm not that strange. Her work uh, sent me on a whole long journey on. Yeah. In the, complex differences between male and female sexuality. You know, she presented a paper. It's, it's never, I don't think it's ever been published several years later titled, I was wrong. Men are pretty damn sexually fluid as well. <laughs> Which, really? I didn't yes. see that. I've just oh, seen the title. I've wow. seen people reference, but it's not, it's a, it's a paper she presented at a conference. I think I want to say, let's see, that book was 2009, I believe. So I think the conference was 2014 um, oh, I would the, be really interested in that. And there's actually a whole underground, I think I can mention the name at least, there's an underground, but it's, it's, it's a non-public um, community of specialists in the field of sexual orientation called the Puzzle of Sexual Orientation. And they love to explore the complexity of male and yeah. female sexuality. I've written a few blogs a while back on, you know, what do we actually know about sexual orientation? And it's a lot right. messier than than we think. Um, so you're married to a dude. And you uh, know, and honestly, that's also <laughs> why even when, before I was a Christian, when I was exclusively having sexual and romantic relationships with women, I never called myself a lesbian. Really? Why? It, the word seemed to pack all these things into my experience that didn't belong there. I associated it with being really political about your sexuality, yeah. which I didn't feel. I associated it with hating men, which I didn't feel. Huh. I associated it with this idea, and, and some of this is just, you know, teenage childish nonsense, but I associated it with this idea that one of the partners had to be really masculine, the other was feminine, and I've always been tomboyish, but not yeah. butch by any sense. Um, and so it just seemed to be talking about this whole thing that had nothing to do with the fact that I just really wanted to marry a woman someday. How did you identify as queer or nothing or? Oh, not well. So that was part of the, because I became a Christian so early in my 
time at Yale, I never really got to explore that. So in high school, I was the only person I knew who would claim same-sex attraction. Okay. Um, there was one girl, a Presbyterian's daughter, who eventually transitioned to being a man, but that happened later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there wasn't really a community of LGBT people around me to help me think through labeling stuff. And then I went to Yale and so quickly became a Christian mm. that I was really invested in that part of my identity. <clears throat> and so people would ask me questions like, oh, are you still gay? And I'm like, well, that's weird. Like, why would I call myself gay now? <laughs> But it also doesn't feel right to call myself straight because I'm not attracted to men. So I kind of didn't know what to call myself. Actually, into my marriage, I sort of settled into the idea that maybe the word married was best. You know, sort of like, well, this is how I'm this is how I'm shepherding my sexual desire. It's towards this spouse that God has given me. And if uh, he got hit by a bus and keeled over, then I would be single. And that might be the best word. But the problem, of course, is in the midst of the church needing to have a conversation around sexuality, even if the word married felt the most comfortable and accurate for me to wear, it also obscures as much as it reveals. Like, I think it's useful for me to identify as someone who experiences same-sex attraction. So it's been complicated. Um, And I know that same-sex attraction as a label has a checkered history because of reparative therapy too, but I learned that after I started using it for myself. So it's been kind of complicated. Yeah, so you you and our mutual friend Greg Coles um, did a back and forth, really helpful. I've sent this to so many people and they've really enjoyed it. There's dialogue about whether a Christian who holds to a traditional sexual ethic should identify as gay or simply maybe describe themselves as, as you do as same sex attracted. You both um, hold different views on that. You know, Greg is very happy saying he's gay. You're don't like that label. Um, and yet you very much respect each other, friends, yada, yada, yada. What are some maybe elevator pitch points of why you, and I'll just, let's just focus on you rather than making maybe a broad brush and maybe we can expand it out if we want, but why don't you, um, think the term gay is helpful for you? Um, so I think my number one reason is just its ambiguity. Okay. So if I walk into a room, let's say, of I've spent a lot of time in campus ministry. If I walk into a Boston University common room, a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old, mostly non-Christians, and say, hey, I'm a gay Christian, what they're going to think I mean is that I'm attracted to women, to women and I'm married to a woman or want to marry a woman. And that I think that that is totally okay with the Christian faith because on the ground, gay doesn't just mean who you're attracted to. It, it means a whole lot of things. And one of them is what you're actually going to pursue. That's how it's used. No. So that's contested, right? Cause I've heard. It's uh... totally contested. So I'm just going anecdotally for me, totally, but yeah. I know so... if I, if I walk up to my neighbor and say, I'm a gay Christian, they're going to think I'm Matthew Bynes instead of, instead of me. If they're aware of the affirming, non-affirming kind of camp. Even if they're not, I think, cause like, so I live next door to a guy named Billy Graham, who's not a believer, which I love. Are you serious? Oh yeah. It's <laughs> I mean, his given name's William Graham, but he goes by Billy Graham. He's a, he's a local high school PE teacher. Um, 
I sw- I like if I if I rang Billy's doorbell and told him I'm a gay Christian, he would be confused because I'm married to a man. But he'd be confused because he'd think, doesn't that mean you're a Christian who can marry a woman? Like I would bet a hundred bucks that's the direction he would go. Now, um, I'm I'm not even sure. I think Greg and others would say, well, that's why the term can be helpful is because it. Um, well, would they say that? I don't know. That. Uh, let me just say, one might respond uh, that <laughs> this is exactly why gay should be used because um, it uh, kind of challenges and confronts and gives opportunity to discuss these kind of assumptions about this box called gay well. and this box called Christian and what these have to mean. Um, what yeah, would you... and, and maybe it can. I One of my main roles in my life is to be a missionary. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like clarity with language is part of the missionary task. So again, I actually don't think I'm not going to call anyone a heretic or I'm not going to say anyone's in sin because they choose to call themselves a gay Christian. I just, I think the ambiguity isn't worth it. And I think it's also not worth it in the church. You know, there are a lot of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are more conservative, who are older, who are still, we want to help them get to a place where they don't just agree with God's doctrine, but where they're able to respond compassionately to people. And I find that when I'm speaking to that group, if I were to use gay or queer language, it's just going to throw dust in the air. It's going to create more barrier, I think, to the conversation as opposed to more understanding. Mm -hmm. And so whether I'm outward facing or inward facing, I find that gay Christian can be a little less helpful. And also, frankly, too, and this is entirely anecdotally, I found that more it just seems to be more of us who actually came out of same-sex relationships are a little more wary about the gay Christian label. There is something about it that feels like, hey, that's the life I left. Okay. Whereas it seems like developmentally, if you had to spend years fighting internalized homophobia and shame, or if you had to spend years deathly afraid that the word gay would ever get attached to you in a Christian context because it could destroy everything, you know, then I think there could be a case that in the process of discipleship, it actually creates some freedom and some safety to just be able to use the word about yourself. And you don't mean you're going to be seeking disobedience. You're just trying to be able to say, hey, this is true about me. And it's important that it's true about me. And and I'm not going to be able to actually live a thriving life in Christ if I can't even acknowledge that. Yeah, that's good. That's, I mean, my, my biggest, uh, cause I understand the concerns of both sides. Like when I'm reading your and Greg's totally. blogs, I'm like, you know, I'll read yours and I'm like, yes, this makes sense. I'm on. Okay. I'm in. <laughs> and I'll read Greg's. I'm like, Oh no. You know, and like, but I just think uh, what you said at the beginning that we should be able to come to the table and converse about these things and challenge, like genuinely challenge one another in thinking and yet not um, call each other's you know, call each other heretics or say you're in sin. Not, not that any Christian would ever, ever do that in this. No, no, no. That's not a type of behavior that we see all the time <laughs> on the internet. I mean, the fact that we actually, in 2020, the year 2020, the fact that we hold to a sexual ethic that defines marriage as a relationship, relationship between a man and a woman, that all sexual relationships outside that bond are sin. That's pretty <laughs> extreme. Like, are we really, yeah, it do we really, really want to publicize further divisions that. within that? Like, I know. And it's important. I think the conversations, so that's one big rock, right? What you just said is one big rock, but the conversations that flow out of that, that need to flow out of that, um, we haven't been able to have 
out because it's been hard for people to even say that they experience same-sex attraction. Right. So I'm, even though there is some fighting, even though there's some division, I'm really excited for what the Lord yeah. is going to do in terms of creating opportunity for us to talk through the things we need to be able to talk through yeah. so that we can thrive in Christ. Yeah, I just realized right now that in a half hour, I'm having a podcast with Wesley Hill, who's on the other side of this. Thing. Oh, that's <laughs> so this great. It's a nice lineup. I don't know if they'll be released back to back, but uh, if, you know, just all morning I'm talking to some interesting people. So, um, so mixed orientation marriages. Now, even that language might be a little loaded, you know, orientation, whatever, but you're, you're married to a guy, you're still attracted to women, not men. And yet you're, um, do you, do you, um, if I can ask, do you, do you have attractions to your husband or is it yeah. just a different, well, you know, how would you and, describe and that? Sometimes I like to refer to my marriage as a same orientation marriage because we're both attracted to women. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Which has got to be interesting when you're, at the beach and you both are like, yeah, you know, we sort hey, of were jokingly, <laughs> you know, yeah, we're sort of, we used to joke early on in our dating. We realized we're actually, we're sort of attracted to similar types of women. So that was kind of amusing. Um, <laughs> I did have to wrestle with when, when Andrew and I started dating there, there was a little bit of a crisis for me because I had experienced a couple relationships with women that really felt like the stuff you hear about in songs and movies, you know, explosive and dynamic and excited butterflies and the whole thing combustive, you know? Mm -hmm. And as I was getting to know Andrew, I mean, if you ever meet Andrew Gilson, he's just like the nicest human being that's ever been in existence. He's, <laughs> he's warm and friendly and, and godly. So it's easy to feel affectionate towards Andrew just in general. And so as we started dating, uh, I realized that, I maybe did seem to have an amount of an attraction to him, but it, it almost felt like, like a tiny little flame that you kind of have to shield from the wind with your hands, <laughs> like compared to these combustive things, you know, I'm looking down at this little flame thinking, I think this is real, but oh my God, is this enough to build a marriage on? Huh. And that really forced me back to the text to ask some questions like, well, what is marriage supposed to be? Is romance strong romance uh, is that required is is like a combustible level of sexual desire a, uh, a deal breaker and i think as i went back to the text what i encountered was romance can be a part of marriage um, but but actually that what christ is doing through marriage is maybe deeper and wider is actually uh, more full than the the type of shallowness that pure sexual sexual lust can be. So I actually felt like maybe I got to enter into marriage in a more sober place than if I'd just been head over heels, you know, and, and dived right in. I, I got to actually consider, hey, is this someone that I can partner in the gospel with long term? And I don't think that people should get married if there's no sexual attraction, because sex is an important part of marriage. Um, and I don't, I don't think it would be fair when Paul's discussing not depriving our spouse. Mm -hmm. uh, if I were to get married to him and be like, well, you feel like my brother. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think that's fair to him. And that's part of the difficulty, of course, is that um, some of the way the church has dealt with same-sex attraction is this, a lot of unbiblical and unhelpful promises, you know, if you enter into an opposite sex marriage, it will make you straight. Right. 
Um, or if you enter into an opposite sex marriage, that's sort of the proof that you believe in God's sexual ethic. And that's not the way marriage is supposed to work. That's not what it's for. So I don't ever want people to feel pressured as if marriage is the thing that they need, that marriage is going to fix them. Uh, I don't want them to feel like marriage is, marriage isn't varsity. You know what I mean? It's like when you read the New Testament, marriage is JV. It's still good and it's still glorious, but singleness gets this whole vibrant glory of its own in the new covenant. I think some of our, we've just got a dysfunctional relationship with marriage that I think I was actually able to kind of stare in the face because of my same-sex attraction and consider more soberly and, and then joyfully enter into it with a little more of my eyes open. Now, I was still only 22, so how open can your eyes be? But, you know. Not 22 now. You're <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm 34 now. Actually, today, of all things, this is strange, today I've been married for 150 months. <laughs> you keep track of months. <laughs> It's something my husband does. He'll like on the 18th of every month, he'll just quickly add up the months. And he's like, oh, today's 150. And I was like, that's fun. Wow. I'm coming up on 19 years in May. I don't even know how many months Ooh, that that's is. That's a lot I, of months, I think. That's a lot of months. Um, how do you, I don't know, I, I really want to linger on this. Sure. Uh, same orientation marriage <laughs> thing. No, because I think, yeah. like, Obvious. I'm going to say obviously for my, our listeners that don't know, let me just say, obviously, um, these kinds of marriages have been very much abused, destructive yes. and dangled as a carrot in front of gay yep. people to say, if you just get married, if you just watch straight porn enough, you know, you'll yep. like it's just been done and or at least talked about in a very unhelpful way. Now, it seems like the pendulum that I see in some circles that swings the opposite direction to say, no, if you're gay or same-sex attracted, marriage to the opposite sex is off the table. It's not even, it's, yeah. you know, pe there, people, there people are, are some quarters where it can be talked about as if it's like would always be a terrible idea. Well, like people associate the traditional view that, of marriage that we both hold as like, oh, so you're mandating celibacy for, for gay people. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I don't. It's just a weird word, mandate. Like, I, <laughs> um, but no, like I, I, it's the same standard for every human. Uh, yep. Fidelity and so singleness and, and sexual faithfulness in marriage. You know. Yeah, I think it, it. To me, when you look at the scriptures and you say, "Hey, God's got two options: you can be faithfully single or faithfully married." Well, suddenly that creates so much less distress over my attractions because. Right whether I'm attracted to men or women or both or neither or potted plants, it like doesn't matter who I'm attracted to. I have the same Holy spirit. Who's going to empower me to obey whatever life station I happen to find myself in. Mm -hmm. I think that creates so much freedom. I don't have to be attracted to every man in order for God to equip me to be married to the one man he's called me to. In fact, sometimes it's helpful to not be. Yeah. Yeah, I know you, you guys. I think uh, I have a boring, normal marriage, you know, <laughs> frankly. And, and like, you, yeah, um, I, I just, and going back to our previous, you know, discussion where we toyed on, you know, the sexual, the co the complexity of sexual orientation. And yeah. even the, this this is a, not maybe not the best word to use, given it's, you know, uh, po uh, polysemy, polysemy, polysemy. 
Fluidity. Well, how do you uh, say that? Yeah. Fluidity. <laughs> like the, the, the fluidity of sexual attraction. Um, yeah. n- not orientation change. This is where I know Lisa Diamond's right. work has been misconstrued, right. saying, see, you can become straight if you're gay or whatever. And that's not at all what she's arguing for. What she is saying is within a general pattern of orientation, there is fluidity and flexibility. And I, yeah. I don't, I, I just, it just seems that for most humans, this is gonna be controversial, but it's theology and raw, so whatever. I, I think most humans are capable of a spectrum of sexual desires given the right circumstance, the right mindset, the right relationship, the this, that, the, the, the maybe mental roadblocks. I mean, the sexuality is so complex and is much more flexible than people make yeah. it out to be. And this is where, again, I, I, I almost hesitate saying that because it sounds like I'm, oh, if you just get married to the opposite sex, it'll be fine. No, if you go in not being honest with yourself, your spouse, if it's not a mature person, if you're, you know, no, it's going to be, it's probably going to be a disaster. Yeah. Um, and but break a lot yeah, of things along the way. Yeah. And I, but I've talked to most people in a healthy mixed orientation. I'm I would say all personally that I've talked to that where it's an honest, vibrant, they've got a, a, a biblical view of marriage. They love their spouse as a human being The the right. sexual or any romantic and even sexual attractions are sometimes, no, are always, in my experience, cultivated to a lesser degree. It's different on and on and on. It's not the combustion, you know, as if that's even a healthy foundation for marriage anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but it, it, our, our human sexuality is more flexible than people um, often assume. Is that, is that yeah. I said anything totally wrong or should I no, I mean, delete that, that, that last two minutes? My <laughs> anecdotal experience, the research that I've read, people I've talked to, seems to reflect the same. And and I I just want us to be, I want us to have an open hand towards the Lord. You know, I I do feel it seems likely that most disciples who experience same-sex attraction, who identify as gay, will be single. That that seems true, most. Um, But it also is clear that he calls some of us into marriage. And maybe even more controversially, some people, he really does change their attractions. Which I don't even know what to do with that, but what, what can do you, you do? do I think ah, <laughs> I met this woman. Actually, I wrote about, I interviewed her for my book. She, like me, did not grow up in the church. She realized in her teen years that um, she wanted to identify, not just wanted to identify as a lesbian, but rather that she was attracted to women and so identified as a lesbian mm-hmm. and was happy there. You know, had girlfriends, went off to university, British woman, so that's how she says it came to know Christ through a friend, through an alpha course, you know, she would tell me the story about how she was crying on a street corner about how she realized she's probably going to spend her whole life single, but that Jesus was worth it. A couple years into her faith, never prayed for it, never asked for it. Her attractions just changed. Hmm. She put it, she's like, now I'm, I'm basically a hundred percent attracted to blokes. And I'm like, I don't use that word, but you know, what are you going to do? It's her. <laughs> and she's still single. It's been like 10 years. Huh. Wow. So she's also sort of like, well, what was the point of that? Yeah. Why did you change my attractions? And I'm still not married to anybody. So I think the the things that God does in our life, yeah, they're a little messier than than we make it, them out to be. So it, it doesn't mean anything because I've got those stories too. Um, I would say ninety percent of the stories are by women. 
in my yeah, experience. Yeah, and it does. Yeah, and, and for sure. Going back to again, female sexuality is way more flexible, fluid. Right. Um, is that is that why? I mean, is that just the is that the answer? Did I just say the answer? Why are they know. most mostly women? Because female sexuality is different. Um, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, even the people, uh, you know, people who write in this space, you think about Lori Krieg or yeah. um, someone totally different like Rosaria Butterfield or Jackie Hill Perry, married women. Yeah. You think yeah. about a lot of the men who write in this space, other than Nate Collins, yeah. mostly not. I mean, it's yeah. just sort of funny how it pans out. You know, I don't, I really don't know. Yeah. So again, your book, uh, I just, your title is so good. Um, Born Again This Way, um, it releases on March 1st, which maybe this podcast is being listened to after March 1st. I'm not sure when it's going to be released. So March 1st, your book comes out, Born Again This Way. Would you say most of the stuff we've talked about is in, is in the book? And people are like, man, I would love to get Rachel's thoughts further on this or that. Um, yeah, totally. So I wrote it to be a practical theology, you know, to help same-sex attractive believers think through things like the fact that many of our desires um, won't change to think through questions like, well, how should I engage in same sex friendships? How should I think about singleness? How should I think about marriage? Um, hmm. Yeah. So, cause we've got a nice little body of literature that kind of covers memoir space, you know, like, Oh, I grew up in the church. I felt this way. I need to reconcile them. And we've got some good literature that covers God's sexual ethic just from like a more straightforward yeah. theological view. Usually we written by straight people. <laughs> yeah. You can say we, it, I get uh, it. No, it's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, Sam Albury wrote one, you yeah, know. Yeah. So, you, think, you know. Um, but we don't have a lot of practical theology yet. You yeah. know, there's a difference between a book on what is prayer biblically and like Tim Keller's book on prayer. Hmm. And I feel like what what we need is we need same-sex attracted Christians, we need disciples who identify as gay and are following um, the traditional biblical sexual ethic to start writing some practical theology to help each other figure out how we're, how we're supposed to do this together. And I do feel like it's much better that you're writing a book like this than, than someone like me. Like I, there will always be that, just that slight gap, sometimes not so slight, um, in me kind of saying, here's how to steward your same-sex sexuality uh, versus somebody who's, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk. So, Although, yeah. you know, what's interesting about the inverse of that is a lot of my early readers have been straight people. And I've had so many of them say to me, man, I've never felt same sex attraction in my life. But this was so helpful in me thinking yeah. about my own desires. The best I, I've learned more about marriage from my same sex attracted friends in a same orientation marriage than all of my straight Isn't that funny? no really and i've more i've learned more about same-sex non-erotic healthy male intimacy from my single gay yeah. christian friends um so yeah i, yeah, I absolutely i think yeah. there's a there's an angle on friendship that's going on because we have to think about friendship more deeply and more carefully mm -hmm. yeah totally well rachel it's so good having you on the show i highly encourage it's great my uh, listeners to go check out your book, uh, born again, this way, something uh, that hasn't really come up. Um, is that, I mean, Rachel, you got a great story, amazing love for the Lord. You're, um, you know, you work for a campus ministry, but you also are a really good writer. And oh, thanks. so, well, yeah. So you kind of like, kind of like my friend, Greg Coles, Greg Coles wrote a book and, you know, single he gay is Christian. a great writer. And, and yeah. it's a, it's a really helpful book. It's thoughtful, but it's just a beautifully written book and yours. I haven't read it yet, but I've read your stuff on, you know, blogs and stuff. And you're just a, 
really good writer. So if you appreciate good writing, I would encourage you to check out the book. So um, thanks so much for being on the show, Rachel. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.